Welcome to Above Avalon. This is episode 157. Let's talk Apple and China. Hi, I'm Neil. Apple finds itself in quite the controversy. Last week, a firestorm erupted over Apple's decision to remove HK Map Live from the App Store in Hong Kong. Apple claimed the app, which mapped crowdsourced information regarding police activity, broke App Store guidelines and local laws. Apple received quite a bit of pushback in terms of that reasoning. At first, this may sound like other episodes in the past where Apple would remove an app from the App Store. The developer would get upset, go to the press, and try to change public opinion so that Apple's made to look like a bad actor, essentially a, a powerful force that dictates what can and can't be shown or distributed in the App Store, which is the case, by the way. And to be fair, I think Apple often stumbles in terms of trying to justify its reasoning or its decision with regarding these app removals. The thing is, HK Map Live was different. And that's because hours before Apple's decision to pull the app, they had been threatened by China's People's Daily newspaper about continuing to make the app available. That changed the entire dynamic. This became not just Apple versus HK Map Live or Apple versus a certain developer. This became an Apple versus China issue. Now, in the past, this would have been accompanied by a debate. People would look at Apple's decision to continue to do business in China, and they would weigh the pros and cons. Things are different this time. There is no debate. Instead, virtue signaling is rampant. U.S. ideologies are being weaponized. In today's episode, we are going to go over why I think the narratives that are in the press, especially what's found in the U.S., are off the mark when it comes to Apple and China. We will also look at the details regarding Apple's decision to engage with China and why I don't think it's right to just look at China in isolation here. Because when you take a broader look over Apple's decision to engage in many different scenarios with many different actors and countries, I think we end up with a very different picture of what's going on. Based on narratives in the U.S. press, Apple should become some type of political entity tasked with undermining political institutions iPhones, iPads, and Apple Watches are to be somehow used as indoctrination weapons for Apple's beliefs. If those objectives somehow represent Apple's future, the company will first need new management, employees, customers, and a different board of directors. Because Apple is not in the business of waging political wars. In my mind, so many questions have been raised over the past two weeks. How do we get to this point? Why has there been such a breakdown in terms of people being able to debate what is a very serious issue? It feels like people are getting into certain tribes and they're now talking past each other. Are we seeing a byproduct of U.S. and China trade tensions boil over? Did the NBA versus China clash a few days prior to Apple removing the app in Hong Kong touch a nerve in the U.S.? A few days ago, I published a weekly article over at AboveAvalon.com on this subject titled A Different View on Apple and China. 
The thing is, I didn't publish that last week while all of this was unfolding. Instead, I used the above Avalon Daily updates to share my initial thoughts on what was going on. And in those updates, I talked a little bit about how the U.S. press was approaching this topic, this controversy. And it ended up that I received quite a bit from those updates. Because I had comments coming in from above Avalon members who live outside the U.S. They saw the situation from a different perspective. They saw the complexity associated with the latest developments in Hong Kong and China. That same complexity has been missing from U.S. press coverage of the situation. There are pros and cons associated with Apple doing business in China, just as there are pros and cons found with doing business in a long list of other countries. Even Apple's decision to engage with the U.S. administration on certain issues can be debated, and in my opinion, should be debated. There are differences here. In some countries like the U.S., Apple can discuss where it stands on social and political issues. Even yesterday, we see Tim Cook using Twitter for this exact reason. In other countries like China, such openness is not possible. This has led some in the U.S., and maybe we can even say many in the U.S., to call Apple a hypocrite for pontificating on certain ideals only to be willing to do business in a country that doesn't follow the same ideals. Apple is no stranger to criticism regarding its decision to do business in China. Pretty much since Tim Cook became CEO, China has been viewed as more of a risk versus asset. Or maybe we should say a liability versus an asset. And I don't think that same dynamic was found in the 2000s or even the late 1990s. Back in 2016, Cook said the following in response to critics who said he shouldn't engage with the Chinese government. Quote, For my American mindset, I believe strongly in freedoms. They are at the core of what being an American is. And I have no confusion on that. But I also know that every country in the world decides their laws and regulations, end quote. Cook then alluded to the man in the arena passage from U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt's citizenship in a republic speech. Now, I thought about maybe taking a sentence or two from this paragraph, but I'm worried that that would kind of lose some of the context. So I'll go over, I'll recite the paragraph that is highlighted. I'll also include a link to the full speech in the show notes as well in order to get a little bit more context even beyond this one paragraph. So again, this is from U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt's citizenship and a republic speech. Quote, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in the worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, 
at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. In most politically dicey situations over the years, Cook has followed Roosevelt's advice and picked engagement. At the same time, Cook has become more comfortable talking about the ideals that guide Apple's culture, such as environmental responsibility, privacy, and equality. In my view, that is one aspect of Tim Cook's legacy as CEO. It's a very big deal. Here's the thing. He doesn't weaponize those ideals to issue ultimatums to foreign governments. Instead, Cook uses his position as CEO to explain to the world which ideals guide Apple employees and the company's mission to create tools for people. Now, this brings up a few questions. At its core, what drives Cook to follow Roosevelt's advice and engage? Why does Apple put itself in what appears to be compromising positions in terms of doing business with certain countries if it doesn't intend to leverage its position to push for immediate change? In my opinion, that last question is key because this topic or the subject of change in China has been, in a way, weaponized by many in the U.S. press over the last week. Now, I'm going to point out one particular publication, but this really has been found in various publications, various online, also cable channels. It's been everywhere, really. The following quote is an opinion from the Washington Post editorial board who came out hard against Apple and China. Quote, When the United States and its allies made the decision to engage with China, they imagined that economic growth and trade would promote political liberalization and a convergence of values. That hasn't happened. Instead, there is competition between vastly different sets of values, and China doesn't hesitate to use the lure of its market to demand fealty to its propaganda line. End quote. In my opinion, that argument has nothing to do with Apple's decision to engage with China. Instead, what the Washington Post is doing is they're turning this into a political weapon. And we see this occur across the U.S. press and media. The complexity that's found with this issue is just going away. They're trying to change the definition of what being engaged is all about. This brings us to the heart of the discussion here. What is driving Tim Cook? to do business in China? What is driving him to follow Roosevelt's advice and pick engagement? My suspicion is that Cook doesn't want Apple to become an idealistic mirage of itself with closed-mindedness reigning supreme. If Apple only did business in countries that have laws matching its beliefs, Apple would operate in just a handful of countries. Such a strategy would represent a big step back in Apple's tool-making mission because the biggest loser would be the Apple customer. In my view, that is good enough reason for Apple to remain engaged with China and other countries rather than retreat into some kind of self-imposed bubble. And that's exactly what many in the U.S. press are advocating for. The fact that the preceding opinion can now be viewed as extremists in the U.S. 
shows just how far the narrative involving China has shifted. Ongoing issues between China and the U.S. regarding intellectual property theft and economic prowess have taken over the discussion. It makes Apple's engaged strategy seem naive and out of date, although I don't think that's correct. There's another factor that plays a role in Cook's engaged strategy, and it's how Apple views its customers. This latest uproar regarding Apple in China made me realize something that I never really spent much time thinking about. I don't consider Apple as a U.S. company. Instead, I've always thought of Apple as a global company headquartered in the U.S. Now, that may seem like a subtle difference, but it speaks volumes. Apple doesn't look at its customers as Americans, Chinese, German, Russian, Canadian. Everyone is an Apple customer. This really hits home when I attend an Apple event. The cultural diversity that's found in the audience at these events isn't visible when you watch a keynote online. English ends up being just one of many different languages spoken at these Apple events. Last month, I flew out to Apple Park to attend Apple's iPhone and Apple Watch event. One day prior in the afternoon, I was sitting outside the Apple Park Visitor Center. This is the Apple Store at Apple Park. They have a nice seating area sort of within a tree grove. And I was getting ready for the keynote the following day. I was writing up some notes, coming up with some questions for which I was going to focus on getting some answers as Apple was working through its keynote. Someone came up to me. He had an iPhone on a gimbal, and he just started asking questions. <laughs> English was not his first language, so it was a little bit difficult to, at first, figure out what was happening. But it eventually occurred to me that he was essentially doing a kind of an interview on the street type of thing in which he was trying to get my reactions to different questions. And some of his questions were like, do I use an iPhone? Um, he had a printout of the Apple invite for the keynote the following day. And he said, what do I think of this image? What do I think is going to be announced at the keynote the, the following day? And as it turned out, I eventually said, well, I'm actually here to attend the keynote. I'm, and he said, well, I am too. And he went on to explain that he was from Japan and that he was doing some questions because he thought his viewers, his audience, uh, would enjoy getting a sense of the scenery, basically getting a sense of what's taking place, what is the buildup to the event. And that really, and by the way, that interview may be online somewhere. <laughs> I don't know which outlet he was from, but maybe it's on there. I don't know. If you find it, <laughs> send it my way. I haven't been able to see it. But that ended up being a precursor to one of the highlights for me from the event. And that was just the diversity that was found in the crowd. Not only are we talking about the countries that people came from, but also the different industries. And that takeaway really did a lot for me in terms of cementing what it is that Apple is trying to do here. Why does Apple exist? 
and that is that Apple sells tools. They sell products to people. And it's not that they're only selling products to certain people in certain countries. They are selling tools that they think people can use to in some way add value to their life, that in some way can improve one's life. And of course, the way that they can do that, the way that the tools will be able to accomplish that will will be subjective to your individual circumstance, where you live, your family, your work schedule. But from Apple's perspective, their mission is to serve customers. It's to come up with tools that their customers would enjoy. You don't get that sense when you're reading all about Apple in China the past couple weeks. No one talks about that. Now, it is true. Governments around the world play a role in how Apple's able to reach its customers. We see this on display with the controversy in Hong Kong and Apple's decision to remove the mapping app. That doesn't take anything away, though, from the ideals that are guiding Apple's tool-making mission. Those who think Apple should just abandon China at whatever cost fail to recognize that China is now home to approximately 15% of Apple's customers. The claim that I'm about to make may sound naive, and sometimes I get pushback for saying it, but I think it's the truth. When Apple thinks of a certain country, and we could point to the U.S., Canada, China, India, Russia, really doesn't matter. They don't look at that country as a potential source of cash, a potential source of revenue or profit. They think of customers. They look at that country as home to potential customers. And as a toolmaker, they are tasked with coming up with tools that they think can add value to those customers' lives. In a way, this is somewhat connected to how Johnny Ive has always talked about how profit does not guide Apple's product development process. And we see this by looking at Apple's product line. If the primary thing Apple cared about was grabbing revenue, there's a whole lot of easier things that Apple could be doing to achieve that goal than what we see Apple doing in terms of looking at its product line, looking at how there is still focus. There is a level of nimbleness that's still found in Apple's product strategy. Advocating that Apple should succumb to various pressures and shun anyone, any customer, who may disagree with its ideals is the very definition of closed-mindedness. And I think that extends to how Apple approaches and works with certain governments. As for the increasingly popular claim that Apple isn't just doing business in China, but is instead going so far as to kowtow to the government, the supporting evidence is underwhelming. For example, removing an app that delivers news from a publication banned in China is not kowtowing to China. Apple would do the same in any other country with similar laws. Instead, kowtowing would involve breaking other countries' laws merely because China told Apple to do so. Another example of kowtowing would be Apple telling its employees to change their ideals because China told them that is the only way to do business in the country. 
we simply don't see Apple exhibiting such behavior, contrary to what is being reported in the U.S. press. With that said, one example of kowtowing to China would be international companies agreeing to refer to Hong Kong, Taiwan, Macau as part of China. However, the uniqueness found with that one example is duly noted. Given how following economic sanctions imposed by the U.S. and other countries end up being another example of companies kowtowing to a government, it's clear that the topic deserves a much more nuanced debate than what's currently found in the U.S. press. There is no playbook for Apple management to follow when it comes to leading a trillion-dollar company with a billion customers around the world. We can look at how Apple does business in China. There's plenty of evidence that show that Apple executives struggle at times with how best to approach the country. The thing is, the company has shown little to no hesitation in its broader engagement strategy. For example, Apple's final decision to pull HK Map Live from the App Store in Hong Kong took nearly a week to play itself out. Apple initially pulled the app, only to reinstate the app and then pull the app again. However, at the end of the day, it was Tim Cook who wrote a message to Apple employees explaining his decision, a decision that was met with intense skepticism by those in Hong Kong and the U.S. Cook's decision to engage Apple will mean that there will be more controversies such as HK Map Live going forward. Apple may not be completely ready for such controversies, but the company will likely be willing to confront them. That stance shouldn't take anything away from Apple's steadfast pursuit to leave the world a better place. I don't know what will unfold politically in China in a month, a year, or a decade from now. No one does. Not even Apple. However, I am confident that Apple will continue to develop tools for improving people's lives. It was this tool-making mission that initially led Tim Cook to begin building Apple's supply chain and manufacturing apparatus in China in the late 1990s. I don't think it is a stretch to say that Apple is where it is today, partially because of China. Cook saw how China, not the U.S., could support such a global apparatus capable of making a lot of high-quality products in a short amount of time. Instead of taking these most recent controversies to push an Apple versus China narrative or agenda, I think it is much more valuable to look at how Apple has redefined what it means to be a global company. How Apple has essentially leveraged the world in its tool-making mission. This is a company that fundamentally believes in creating tools for everyone. And not just those who are found in self-imposed bubble or some idealistic mirage. Now, Apple's global apparatus and its global ambitions are going to lead to some confrontations, some conflicts. That is inevitable. And Apple is going to make plenty of mistakes here. This is not a perfect company by any stretch of imagination. In those circumstances... I think maybe the best thing to do is to have a debate. Go over the pros and cons found with Apple's decision to be, quote, in the arena. Unfortunately, that debate is currently missing. Maybe it's going to be up to Apple to bring such a debate back to life. 
That's going to do it for today's episode. If you enjoy the perspective and analysis found in this podcast episode and in the weekly articles over at AboveAvila.com and you want more of it throughout the week, I do publish exclusive daily updates about Apple. These daily updates are 2,000-word emails that are sent directly to your inbox. I talk about everything from Apple business and strategy analysis, my perspective and observations on current news and Apple competitors, my Apple financial estimates, and I go over full coverage of Apple earnings, product events, and keynotes. If it is of interest to Apple, it is something I pay attention to. These daily updates represent the cornerstone of Above Avla membership. So if you like to receive these updates exclusively in your inbox, all you have to do is become an Above Avla member. Head on over to AboveAvalon.com and then go to the membership page. There are two membership options available. It's either $20 per month or $200 per year. Apple Pay is accepted. And once you become a member, you also have additional privileges and benefits, all of which are listed on the membership page. So in addition to receiving the daily updates, Members also receive my exclusive reports at no additional charge. So these are in-depth examinations into Apple's business strategy. Members also receive access to my working Apple earnings model at no additional charge. The model is fully functional and adjustable with the ability to alter earnings drivers. There's email priorities, so receive timely responses to email questions and inquiries. There's an archive, so you could go back and read previously sent daily updates and reports, and there's a form so you could chat with other Above Avalon members. Since memberships are designed for a single user, group memberships are available for your team or company. In addition, if you know someone who may enjoy Above Avalon membership, you are able to gift a membership to that person. All of that information and more is found on the membership page. I also have a list of frequently asked questions with answers. I am proud to say that Above Avalon is fully sustained by membership. So if you are currently an Above Avalon member, thank you for your support. And if you're planning on becoming an Above Avalon member, thank you in advance. With that, I will conclude today's episode. I will talk to you all later.